What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Called to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's a very special program in our, uh, you know, uh, Catholic broadcasting because it is a Catholic program for non-Catholics, people who have questions about the Catholic faith and they just don't know where to get those questions answered. That's the simple uh, focus of the program that we try to keep to each and every day. Here's our phone number if you've got a question about the Catholic faith or perhaps you'd like to explain to us uh, what it is about the Catholic faith that is keeping you from becoming a Catholic. Here's that number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code, which is 1, and then 205-271-2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. We'll get to one of those in a moment here. The address CTC at EWTN.com, CTC at EWTN.com. Charles Beery, our producer today. Also, we have Jeff Burson handling social media. If you want to ask a question uh, via YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming there right now. Just put your question in the comments box, and uh, Jeff will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio. Hopefully, we can get your question answered on today's program. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing great. How are you? Uh, I'm doing decent. Thank you so much. Staying cool? Yeah, it, reasonably. Doing it my is, best. It is July in the South. You know, it's kind of a full-time job trying to stay cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a mere 91 today, which is actually not that bad. It's when it gets over 100 that I'm, you know, with the 100% humidity that I'm really starting to melt. My wife says, uh, do you know what the coldest season in the South is? Well, the answer is summer. Because you're going from this 65-degree building to this 64-degree building. And, oh. you know, so you're never really thawing out. Yeah. I remember I, I, I was visiting a Catholic college in the state of Florida, South Florida, on one occasion, uh, during the summer. And it was um, it was like stepping out of my car felt like stepping over the uh, the vents of hell. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was unbearable. And I remember, you know, we were taking this tour. And I would be in one building, and they, you know, they had the air down to like 65 degrees. Yes, and yes. you sort of stand at the door and go, okay, take a deep breath, one, two, three, bolt, run for it. And then you zip across <laughs> the lawn and make it into the next building all dripping in sweat. <laughs> it was uh, hilarious. That's, that's life in the South in the summer for you. Yeah, but we love it. We love yep. it. Here is an email to lead us off. Uh, this is from Matt. Uh, Matt sent this yesterday afternoon, and he says, uh, I am a Protestant, but I'm searching. I was reading the Westminster Confession, chapter 14, the Saving Faith chapter, which talks about, quote, accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. Well, now, the chapter on baptism seems to have the idea that baptism has a, quote, seal. It all seems kind of hypocritical. Any thoughts? I enjoy your program. Matt. 
Yeah, thanks. So, in my opinion, I mean, this is just my personal opinion. Mm. I grew up in the Presbyterian tradition, so I'm familiar with Westminster, and I did my graduate studies on Reformed theology. I did a dissertation on Calvin, so I, I you know, sort of feel like I know that tradition pretty well. Uh, I, I think there are some real difficulties with the Reformed account of baptism and and salvation as well, and you know, Luther, by way of contrast did not reject the Catholic belief that baptism regenerates and brings salvation. He, he, didn't, he didn't deny that. He thought baptism was pretty great stuff. And uh, Calvin, too, recognized the important place of baptism in traditional Christian soteriology. And so mm-hmm. there are passages in Calvin where he will acknowledge that baptism is an occasion for encountering the regenerating grace of God. But what Calvin brought into Christianity that was different from Luther and certainly different from Catholicism was the idea that the that these regenerating effects that can happen in baptism are not somehow uh, intrinsically linked to the rite of the sacrament, and so it's more like baptism is a is a rite the church performs, and sometimes during the rite of baptism God will choose to regenerate the soul. That was Cal- Calvin's belief, or you know, maybe he will do it subsequently, or maybe he won't do it at all. And so you had this problem in Reformed theology that they believe in infant baptism, they believe in the necessity of the sacrament, to a certain extent they believe in the efficacy of the sacrament, but that it depends upon election. And so it's only those souls that are predestined by God to be saved, only in those souls uh, does baptism bring about its regenerating effects. Now, the, the reason that Reformed theolo- theology did that is that they held that a man who is regenerated by the Holy Spirit will never fall away. And since it's manifest that not all of the baptized continue in faith, they reasoned, well, then not all of the baptized were regenerate. And uh, within Catholicism, and Lutheranism for that matter, we didn't have that problem because we recognized that the, 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 the set of the, bapt- of the regenerate is not the same as the set of the elect. It's possible to be regenerate and then lose your standing with God and, and go to hell. Um, but that wasn't the case in Reformed theology. So here's the problem that Reformed theology faced in practical terms. How do I know if I'm one of those people in whom baptism worked? And the whole project of Puritanism uh, was an attempt to answer that question, to, to, to come up with a list of tests whereby one could discern whether they were really regenerate and really elect and really going to heaven. And it, it led to a lot of, in my judgment, neuroticism, Perry Miller, who was the great uh, uh, early 20th century scholar, intellectual his- historian of uh, New England Puritanism, wrote famously that uh, Protestantism may have saved man from the treadmill of indulgences, but it cast him on the iron couch of introspection. <laughs> and uh, you know, if you've ever read Jonathan Edwards' treatise, Religious Affections, you know, this is a principal case of this uh, tendency to self-contemplation. How can I gaze sufficiently hard at my navel to determine, you know, these alleged signs of election. So I think it, it leads to a kind of introspective, in some case, neuroticism, uh, I think is deeply problematic. Okay, well, there you go. And uh, thank you so much for your email. If you would like to send us an email, we uh, try to uh, tackle a couple of emails on each of our live programs. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. In a moment here, we're going to go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, a couple of lines available for you right now, 833 288 
888-528-3986. Call to communion on this uh, rather warm Thursday afternoon here on EWTN. Do stay with us. Glad you're with us for Call to Communion Excuse me, on this uh, Thursday afternoon here on EWTN. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. We'll get to the phones in just a few moments here. Let me tell you about a wonderful book now available from EWTN Publishing, The Roots of a Christian Civilization. It's your compendium on Catholic social teachings. In these incisive pages, our friend Father Brian Malady answers the question, should law implement morality or not? Father provides you with a compendium of accessible answers to a wide range of questions on spiritual and moral theology. Father Malady explains, among other things, the dangers of both liberal capitalism and Marxism. Fascinating book, The Roots of a Christian Civilization, First Principles of a Just and Ordered Society by Father Brian Mullady. A new book now available from EWTN Publishing. You can get it by going to EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic. EWTNRC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We're going to kick it off with Michael in Sugarloaf, California, listening on the EWTN app. Hey there, Michael. What's on your mind today, sir? Well, sir, um, I was having a rather nice, healthy uh, discussion between uh, Catholicism and Protestantism with two friends of mine. She was born Catholic, or, you know, cradle, mm-hmm. and married this fellow that he got in the Protestant thing and got her to come over to the side. And I was helping her with the different things that I've learned from you over the years and with my studies, and we got to the end, he goes, hmm, you got me there. And I said, well, it wasn't a contest in that way. And then he said, you asked Dr. Andrews this. What about the fact that when we go to heaven, right when we die, we go to heaven, they give us a golden crown, and we get to walk around with a golden crown. And you guys don't have that. I went, I've never heard of it. And the only thing I ever saw about Golden Crown was in Revelation with the elders that wore Golden Crown. And he said, oh, we get Golden Crown. Might have been a little bit of the wine after the late dinner. (laughs) (laughs) But the point was, he was talking about they get to march around with the Golden Crown. And I was wondering if you've ever heard anything like this in any type of form of the doctrine of Protestantism. Okay. Yeah, thanks. Well, first of all, I'd like to say that the, the Catholic Church invented the golden crown, all right? Have you ever—I'm sure you've seen uh, ancient and medieval artwork depicting the saints. Uh, ever heard of the halo, right? Uh, yeah. We, we've, been, we've, been putting, we've been putting crowns on people in the form of the halo for, for centuries and centuries, right? Long before Burger King. Long before Burger King, right. exactly. So, yeah, got nothing against that. And there are scripture passages that speak about believers receiving a crown in glory. So uh, St. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Uh, Book of Revelation, what is it, chapter 2, 
uh, Christ says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you can find other references to crowns as well. Uh, The question whether we should imagine those to be, you know, literal crowns made out of metal that sit on your scalp, crown of glory, crown of life. I mean, crown could easily be a metaphor for... Uh, you know the radiance of glory in yeah. in, in uh, it, it, that one receives upon salvation. Uh, personally, uh, f- for me, I would be pretty bummed out if the thing I had to look forward to in the next life was to you know walk around with a big piece of metal on my head all the time. <laughs> and that's that that doesn't seem to me like a lot of fun. Mm-mm. And I I particularly want one. I mean, I'm much more interested in what St. Thomas talks about the beatific vision, which is the intuitive knowledge of God and His essence that satisfies all my uh, desire and uh, and yeah. his, uh, ultimate beatitude. That that's it. I don't really need any metal attached to my head to make that happen. Um, now that being said, what what about this possibility of metal crowns? Well, clearly it can't happen the second you die, because in this is true of Protestants as well as Catholics. We all recognize that there is a kind of a two stage eschatology. There's what happens to you when you die, and then there's what happens when Christ comes back at the end of time and raises the dead. When Christ raises the dead at the end of time, we will have bodies of some sort. It won't be like these bodies, but we'll have bodies of some sort, which presumably could bear the weight of a physical crown if that's in, in the offering. Uh, but when you die, you don't get a physical body until the resurrection. You are in a disembodied state, and mm. you try putting a crown on uh, top of a disembodied spirit, it's going to go right to the floor, right? Yep. Nothing to hang it on, right? Imagine <laughs> trying to hang a crown on, you know, on pie, or like the Pythagorean theorem. The immaterial can't support material yeah. weight, right? Yeah. So that doesn't make any sense. Okay. Hey, Michael, thanks so much for your call. Hope that's helpful for you and for your friends. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. Perhaps you have a question for Dr. David Anders, uh, something about the teachings of the Catholic faith that maybe you just don't understand. We're here to unpack that for you on EWTN's Call to Communion. 833-288-3986. We have four lines open. How about that? Here now is uh, Malachi listening in Fargo on the great Real Presence Radio. Hello, Malachi. What's on your mind today, sir? Hey, uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, So I'm a convert to Catholicism, but my question was specifically with the rosary and these other Marian dogmas, but with the rosary, I've heard people say there's promises associated with it, and my question basically is, how can this be, and are these promises efficacious? Okay, great question. I really appreciate it. So a little bit of a nuance to the answer. Uh, anytime you run into a popular Catholic devotion, there's a, the, the odds are high that some saint someplace uh, mm. purports to have had a revelation in which Mary or Christ or some saint appears and says, if you perform this devotion you know, in the following way, here are the following benefits that I assure you you will receive. Uh, so these are uh, these kinds of things come to us by way of private revelation or claims to private revelation. No Catholic is obligated to believe any report of private revelation, no matter how famous and no matter how popular, no matter how much papal approval has been put behind it. That includes Marian apparitions of the highest order, the, the most popular Marian pilgrimage sites in the world uh, that have been visited and lionized by popes even. You're not obligated to believe that they are veridical because they're not part of the deposit of faith. The deposit of faith are those things taught by Christ and the apostles and handed down by constant tradition through 2,000 years. Anything that comes after that is by definition private revelation and is not obligatory for any Catholic. Uh, Secondly, 
anytime someone makes a claim in private revelation, even if it's a claim that's widely held and widely believed and pious and, and you know, it doesn't offend against faith and morals, uh, you must interpret those claims against the dogmatic teaching of the Catholic Church. So, for example, if someone says, well, hey, you know, if you wear the brown scapular, you're not going to go to hell when you die. Well, and you might find promises to that effect in the tradition, small t tradition. Yeah. Uh, but the way you have to interpret that is, well, what the church teaches dogmatically is that the way to avoid going to hell is to is to remain in the state of grace and avoid mortal sin, right? So the only way that something like the brown scapular or the rosary can keep you out of hell is if it is a prompt to keep you in the state of grace and avoid mortal sin. It can't work any other way, right? It's, this is not like the quick, easy way to heaven that gets around the moral life. You know, it's not like... Live a holy life, or, you know, be a real so-and-so and pray the rosary. No, 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 no. You can't ever interpret those promises in a way that cuts against the dogmatic teaching of the Church. The dogmatic teaching controls the interpretation of those things. Um, and, uh, and you know, I've personally found that sometimes you will find Catholics that uh, I think lean very heavily into those promises in a way that diminishes the central teachings of the moral life in Catholic tradition, that's, and that'd be superstitious, and that would be wrong. Mm -hmm. um, so all that by way, of, uh, uh, by way of preface. Now, if you look at the promises that were uh, allegedly made to uh, Alan de Roop, who was a Dominican theologian in the 15th century, about the rosary, um, let me just, just take one, all right, at, at random, and, uh, and, and see if I can apply the kind of criteria that I'm using. So, okay. so we, we reread, um, the rosary shall be a powerful armor against hell. It will destroy vice, decrease sin, and defeat heresies. Okay, all right, let's, let's unpack that. Um, does that mean that if, if I just mechanically recite the prayers of the rosary without thinking and without attention to the rest of my moral life or going to Mass or being kind to my neighbor or forgiving people who offend me uh, or giving alms to the poor, but just in virtue of letting my fingers run across the beads once a day, that I will have a powerful armor against hell. No, absolutely not. In fact, St. Francis de Sales, who is a doctor of the Church and whose teaching is authoritative, says the opposite, that true devotion does not consist in the mechanical repetition of prayers or any religious activity. It is nothing other than the true love of God and neighbor. So, so that alone won't work. However, if I approach the rosary or any devotion in a spirit of generosity— genuinely seeking to grow in faith, hope, and charity, mm -hmm. then the meditations of the rosary and the prayers of the rosary can, of course, be a powerful instrument that moves me to a greater love of God and neighbor and, and, uh, and, and disincentivizes me, if you will, mm -hmm. from the practice of sin and vice. And so taken in the right spirit, yes, the rosary can certainly do that. And just apply that kind of reasoning to every one of these promises. Yeah. If I do this devotion in this way, with this intent, with this kind of generosity of spirit, seeking these spiritual aims, of course it's going to help you. But it doesn't make the rosary into a kind of magic. Because you know what else does that? The holy sacrifice of the Mass, yeah. confession, baptism, uh, you know, a regular prayer life, uh, giving alms to the poor, uh, reconciling with my family members, living the sacrament of matrimony. I mean, the Catholic faith is awash in means of grace. Some of them are authoritative, you know, in a dogmatic sense, especially the sacraments. Some of them are the product of Catholic tradition, small t, down through the centuries. Mm -hmm. the, po the important thing is 
get to holiness. Find whatever means will bring you to holiness. No two people have to share the same spirituality. Some people are very motivated by devotions. Others by contemplative prayer. Some people just want to live in the liturgy. Others like to read the lives of the saints. Uh, you know, you find the spirituality in Catholicism mm-hmm. that moves you to faith, hope, and charity. That's the best way for you to get to heaven. Malachi, is that helpful for you, sir? Yeah, no, that answers the question. Thank there you go. Appreciate your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. A little uh, hat tip to our celebrity call screener on today's program, Rich Jesse, filling in for uh, Matt Kabinsky, who has the day off. So that's the voice you're going to hear when you call 833-288-EWTN with your question. Uh, 833-288-3986 here on Call to Communion. Let's go now to Paul in Nebraska, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, yeah, I had a, a question. Um, this was uh, brought up by one of my uh, adult children. We've always been part of evangelical churches, uh, but we've never been members. We've given to the church. Uh, we've served in the church. There's sometimes we weren't allowed to serve. We couldn't serve in leadership if we weren't members. But the question arose, could you become a Catholic without being a, quote, member? And I thought, well, good question. I'll call up and ask. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So if you become Catholic, you are a member of the Catholic Church, the church founded by Jesus, that universal body that encompasses both living and dead and stretches from uh, the first century in Judea to every corner of the world and every tongue and nation. You are a member of that church in virtue of your baptism and your profession of faith. Mm-hmm. Nothing else is required to make you a member of Christ's body, which is the church. So, you know, we don't, we don't, I mean, we can talk about particular churches and use that term in a lot of ways, but church with a capital C in the most profound sense is just that, that, that uh, worldwide body founded by Jesus, governed by the Pope and the bishops. And you're a member of that just in virtue of your baptism. Throughout most of Catholic history and in many Catholic countries, the idea of parish membership, you know, signing up at, you know, uh, Our Lady of Good Hope, you know, parish next yeah. to your house, that idea of parish membership is foreign and really doesn't have a place in canon law. It's a convention, especially in the American church, that helps the local community do things like, you know, keep a roll of people to whom they might send offering envelopes or, you know, who do we want to let know about the about the barbecue or the picnic on the 18th. You know, <laughs> you, you got to have a list of people that fall within your pastoral concern, and so parishes will encourage people to register at the parish so they can be kept in the loop, basically. But it doesn't affect your, uh, you know, your, your status as a Catholic. Now, the question about how involved can you be in a local parish without actually putting your name on a roll, that would really be a question up to the discretion of the local pastor. I mean, in many instances, I, I, I can think of people who would attend— I mean, like, I'm a Catholic in the Diocese of Birmingham. Um, a lot of people know who I am in Birmingham. I get invited sometimes to do things at parishes where I'm not registered. I might go give a talk over here or yeah. go teach a RCIA class over there or, you know, and, and the fact that I'm not a registered member of this or that parish doesn't affect that. Now, if I wanted to have some regular ministry, like if I wanted to be a lector, for example, 
read for mass like Tom Price does such a great job of. Um, you know, they generally there's a procedure. People want you to have training, and we, we have to know who this guy is and where he lives, and we can come after him if he gets something <laughs> wrong. You know, they probably they probably want you to be a registered member. But again, that's just a convention of the parish for the sake of convenience. It's not something essential to your Catholic identity. Is that helpful for you, Paul? Yeah, no, no, that 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 described it. Yeah, very good. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much for your call. Congratulations going out to two more members of the EWTN radio family, St. John Paul the Great Radio, that is in Tiffin, Ohio. Also, the Sword of St. George, that is in Manhattan, Kansas. Both great stations celebrating eight years with EWTN. Congratulations to Patricia Cress in Tiffin, Ohio, and Kent Hampton in Manhattan, Kansas, from all of us here at EWTN Radio. In a moment, back to the phones, we'll be talking with uh, Melissa in Mississippi, Pam in Louisiana, Daniel in Perryville. There's a great shrine in Perryville. I've been there a couple times. Uh, We'll also uh, take your call, hopefully, at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this rather warm Thursday afternoon on EWTN. So, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Let's talk about that here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. We have a couple lines open for you, and if you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program. The number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Let's go to Pam now in Opelousas, Louisiana, listening on Sirius XM 130. Pam, I hope I got your town right. What's on your mind today? Um, Opelousas or Opelousas, as we say it over here. <laughs> Very good. All right. Um, I work in a ministry with uh, through Red Red Ministries, which has now become a nationwide Catholic ministry, um, where we minister to grieving parents of child loss of any age and any circumstance. And a question that always seems to come up is, what happens to our guardian angel when we die or when our child dies? Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate the question. So I am not aware of anything in divine revelation, scripture, or tradition that definitively answers the question. And so I I think we can speculate, and I think that's the best we can do. Uh, If the purpose of a guardian angel is to guard and to preserve the soul from danger uh, at death, that really becomes irrelevant, right? There's nothing to preserve the soul from, especially of a child. You mentioned the death of a child. We presume that child is in heaven. There's really no danger to be guarded from. Um, uh, however, you know, if a parent of, of who'd lost a child found comfort in the idea that, you know, maybe my child has a friend or something like that in heaven in the, in the person of his guardian angel, I certainly would not disabuse the parent. There's nothing in the tradition that says otherwise. I yeah. mean, we're just left really to speculation. And there are an awful lot of angels. I think I think there's plenty to spare. Uh, but more importantly, you know, a, a child who rests in God is in need of nothing. And so, you know, if, if God, we don't know that much about the afterlife, but if God sets up the afterlife so, such that our enjoyment of him is necessarily linked to uh, our fellowship with others, which I believe it is, uh, then, uh, then presumably God's going to have others for us to love and be loved by in glory, right? That we'll, sh- we'll share together corporately in our experience of God. And that will definitely include angels who are saints and they're in heaven. 
you know, will it include my guardian angel? Well, eventually, yeah. I mean, to some extent, to be sure, whether we'll still have that particular relationship or not is something I don't know. But the child's not going to be in, in need of anything. That That's the really important point. Pam, thanks so much for your call, and uh, thank you for your work there. Uh, very, very important, uh, that is. Let's go now to uh, Melissa in Ocean Springs, Mississippi, listening on the great Catholic Community Radio. Hi, Melissa. What's on your mind today? Hey, good afternoon. Um, I was just wondering, why do we say 10 Hail Marys when we pray the rosary for each um, mystery? Yeah, thanks. So the origin of that uh, is actually in the Psalter, the Psalms of David. The Benedictine monasteries of the Middle Ages, as you know, their prayer book was the Psalter, and there are 150 psalms. And so the rosary evolved as a kind of layman's psalter. How, how can the lay people imitate Benedictine spirituality when, first of all, they can't read, and second of all, they don't have the time to actually recite, recite all 150 psalms you know, every week? Mm-hmm. And so the idea of saying 150 aves, as they used to call the Hail Mary, um, is uh, in, in kind of solidarity with the monks. So you might be a peasant working out in the fields, and you, know, you might not be able to pack the Psalms of David into your back pocket, uh, but you could, but you could say the Angelus, and you could uh, you could recite 150 Ave Marias, uh, you know, when knowing that the monks were in there praying for your salvation and and for the whole church, you could do your part. And so that was that was an attempt to kind of bring lay spirituality together with Benedictine monasticism in a way that was accessible to the common man. Um, and so that's the origin of the 150 divided by five mysteries. Now, then John Paul had to go mess it up by giving us new mysteries. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but that's, uh, which I love, by the way, I like the luminous mysteries. Yes, but yes. but it was, that was the, the idea. You'd have, you'd have these, you know, five mysteries and, and 10, and 10 uh, Hail Marys and add up to 150. There you go. Melissa, thanks so much for your Time, call. Times three. You know, yes, times sir. three sets. Right? Yes, indeed. All right, let's go now to uh, Daniel in Perryville, Missouri, listening on YouTube this afternoon. Hello, Daniel. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi, thanks for taking my call. My question or questions are concerning 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Um, it states Satan who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. My question is, is Satan the God, in the Church's view, of this world? Um, And then also, are we using the term or word God a little bit loosely, if he is actually the God of this world? Um, yes, absolutely. I appreciate the question very much. So, uh, as you're probably aware, in the Old Testament, there are some psalms that speak about the gods, and uh, they seem to be taking quite seriously the Canaanite uh, divinities from Canaanite mythology. And what later Christian theology reflects back on that is the idea that the gods of the nations are really demons. So that, that's an idea that we find emergent in early Christianity. And the notion that the world is a spiritual battleground is very much part of the New Testament worldview. So St. Paul, for example, in Ephesians 2, um, speaks about, uh, he says to believers, you used to follow the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Um, and, of course, Second uh, Corinthians 2 that you already mentioned, you know, the idea that there is a, a spiritual battle, that Satan is blinding the minds of unbelievers, 
Um, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 goes even uh, uh, one step farther and says that the proper interpretation of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is not possible except for one who has been illuminated by the Spirit of Christ. So you have the Spirit of Christ on the one hand illuminating the consciences of believers, and you have the uh, the, 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 the Spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient, the kingdom of the air on the other side, and, uh, and uh, life is, is uh, depicted as a kind of battle between these two forces. And the ministry of exorcism, Jesus' own ministry of exorcism, uh, is understood in those terms. So when the Pharisees come and they say of Christ that he is casting out demons by Beelzebub, Christ says, well, to say such a thing is the unforgivable sin— and moreover, don't you know that when I cast out demons by the finger of God, that the kingdom of God has come among you? So the, the proof from Jesus' point of view that the long-anticipated promise of the kingdom of God was being fulfilled in his ministry was, in fact, his ministry of exorcism. Now, there is a, a historian of late antiquity named Ramsey McMullen who wrote a book a number of years ago. It's a scholarly book. It's an academic book called Christianizing the Roman Empire. And what he wants to ascertain is how is it that this small sect, uh, this Jewish sect from Judea in the first century, came to dominate the entire Roman world within a few centuries? It went from being this, you know, nothing backwater sect to being the imperial religion. How does that happen? How do you do that? And uh, McMullen's analysis is fascinating because one of the things that he discounts as a possibility is that people were attracted to Christianity because of the appeal of the message. He says, no, that's not the case. And we, that's how we think about advancing the faith. We have to get the word out, let people understand how beautiful it is, and come be attracted to the faith. He, McMullen says, that's not how it happened, because, first of all, early Christians pla- practiced a discipline of the secret, like in the mystery cults, whereby the, the truths of the faith were concealed from outsiders and not, and not uh, routinely shouted from the rooftops, as it were. Mm-hmm. He says, rather, what got the attention of the common man in late antiquity were, were, were displays of supernatural power. And he has a couple in mind. One of them was uh, the feats of asceticism and martyrdom that early Christians endured, because the Romans didn't have any kind of precedent for that. I mean, who are these guys that are willing to be eaten by lions— rather than renounce their faith. I mean, I've never met anybody who was willing to be eaten by lions for Jupiter or for <laughs> Zeus, you know, for Hera or Apollo or yeah. Poseidon. Uh, who are these Christians that are perfectly willing for lions to eat them rather than announce the name of Jesus? Something supernatural is at work here. That was the Roman conclusion. Or their asceticism. You know, look at these. Uh, that's what uh, moved St. Augustine to Christianity when he encountered the desert monks. And he said, look, I've got a, the equivalent of a Harvard degree. I, I went to the best schools. I'm, you know, top of my game and my profession. I'm an educated man, and yet I don't, I don't have half the self-control uh, and bodily mortification that these untutored monks out in the desert have, there's something afoot here. But the other one, according to McMullen, and this is based on documentary evidence, was the ministry of exorcism. And whether you believe in demons or not, one thing that's clear is that most people in the world throughout history have believed in such things. And early Christians were renowned for performing exorcisms in public and the results of those were displays of power that impressed the pagan world. And we have, we have testimony of this from pagans themselves that, uh, that impelled them to join the nascent Christian community. Uh, in early monasticism, uh, particularly by the 4th century, a character like Evagrius Ponticus, who was an Egyptian theologian of the monastic movement, uh, writes whole treatises on the, uh, the proper way to engage in spiritual battle 
for the control of one's mind, and he conceives of the spiritual life as a battle over the allurements of the flesh that he understands to be demonic influence. And interestingly, he sort of anticipates some of the techniques of cognitive behavioral therapy, but uh, but, contra- but construes them in, in this context of spiritual warfare. So that's, um, that's all part of the milieu of early Christianity and continues, of course, in the Catholic Church to this day in uh, two institutions that come to my mind right off the bat. One would be the continuing ministry of exorcism in the mm-hmm. Catholic Church, and the other one would be... Um, uh, the prayer to St. Michael that uh, that Pope Leo instituted that is still very common around the around the Catholic Church today. Yes, indeed. Daniel, thanks for your call today from uh, Perryville, Missouri. Uh, before we went to the call, I mentioned that there is a shrine in Perryville, Missouri, and I can do a little research here on this. Uh, it is uh, St. Mary of the Barons, the National Shrine of Our Lady of the Miraculous Medal uh, that was the uh, uh, founded in uh, 1818. It's the historic seat of the American Vincentians. Like I say, Adrienne and I have been there twice. It is a beautiful uh, shrine to visit if you're out and about this summer. It's uh, on right off of Interstate 55 between uh, St. Louis and Cape Girardeau. So you may want to check that out. All right, uh, it is called a communion here on EWTN. Let's go now to Tom in Freeport, Maine, listening on the great Ave Maria radio. Tom, what's on your mind today, sir? Yes, uh, can you tell me how redemptive suffering works, and also a particular example of it. And, yeah. Uh, yes. Sure, okay. absolutely. I appreciate the question. Thank you so much. So um, Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed, Father, take this cup from me, yet not my will but thine be done. I believe that that is a, a very good illustration of the same spirit that we find in uh, the famous serenity prayer, so beloved by people in 12-step groups, ascribed to the Protestant theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. The idea that there are things in life um, that that I can't change that are adverse to me, that that are difficulties, um, and... um, the French have an expression, um, se faire une raison, to, to give myself a reason uh, in this context, like find some way to construe the thing that is happening to me as a good, right? Uh, and uh, I think that's what Christ does. He says, I don't really like this thing happening to me, but I'm going to understand what's happening to me as coming from the hand of God. He's given himself a reason to endure it. Mm-hmm. So he's not, he's not kicking against the goads of reality. And uh, so, first of all, this just makes good psychological sense. I mean, uh, the the Roman Stoic uh, philosopher Epictetus said, um, don't desire for things to be other than the way they are. Desire for them to be the way they are, and you will get on well. Mm. Right? I mean, and that makes a lot of sense, right? If I, if I If I find a way to be okay with my lot, whatever that lot is, mm-hmm. I will spare myself a lot of needless suffering. Right? But here's where the Christian addition comes in. Uh, rather than, than stoic resignation, what I do is I say, okay, bad things are happening to me. Unpleasant things are happening to me. Yes, I have to re- resign myself to them for the sake of my peace of mind. Mm-hmm. But if I can resign myself to them believing that they come from the hands of a good God and that in his providence they will conduce ultimately to my salvation and that of the world, now this becomes an act of faith. And faith is a virtue and therefore meritorious. 
right? And so it becomes pleasing to God. That's why St. Paul can say, I fill up in my own flesh what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. When I follow Christ's example, and we're called to take up our cross and follow him, Jesus says we can't be his disciples without that. St. Peter says he died to leave us as an example. Leave us an example. When I do that, when I'm like Jesus and I say, be it done to me according to thy word, or that was Mary, or, or you know, not my will but thine be done, that resignation to the divine will is in fact meritorious and pleasing to God, and the merit that I derive from that can be applied for my salvation or that of someone else. Yeah, appreciate that. And Tom, thank you so much uh, for your call. We hope that's helpful for you. Call to communion here on EWTN. If you're coming here to Birmingham for EWTN's free family celebration later on this this, uh, summer, that's going to be on Saturday, August 26th. You may want to stay a little bit longer. There is lots to see and do in our area, including uh, Birmingham's amazing botanical gardens. I'm sure you've been to the botanical gardens. Many times. Yes, indeed. Also, the Barber Vintage Motorsports Museum, which is the largest motorcycle museum in the world. In the world. Uh, We have craft breweries. We have the beautiful Birmingham Zoo. Uh, sporting events, so much more. Go to EWTN.com slash Family Celebration, find out all about it, and you can register for that right there. Again, that's going to be on Saturday, August 26th. Uh, Michelle is watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Michelle says, Hi, I am a Baptist. I'm concerned about the Catholic teaching on corporeal mortification. Where does the church draw the line between appropriate penance and self-harm? Thanks, Michelle. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate the question. So, you know, St. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And why would he do that? Why would he take that attitude? Well, if you've read Romans 7, you know, Paul believed himself to be a man divided, that he had the, the, the law of his flesh at war with the law of his mind uh, and the law of, this, of, the, of the Spirit of Christ. And so for him, the spiritual battle was the battle to purify himself of everything that would contaminate flesh or spirit out of reverence for God. That's the way he depicts his inner life. Okay. And uh, to, to gain victory over that, Uh, is a critical component of the Christian life. Jesus uh, admonishes us to fast. He says, you know, Matthew chapter 6, when you fast, fast in secret, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. And so there is a long tradition in Catholicism of taking these admonitions quite seriously, that we have to get a hold of our immoderate attachments and desires and uh, for the sake of holiness, for the development of virtue. And so, you know, here are some of the things that we do as Catholics, and uh, liturgically and also in our private spirituality. So, you know, liturgically, Catholics have fasts. We don't, they're not real egregious, they're fairly easy. We have a couple of them a year. Uh, but they're encouraged on a voluntary basis to take up fasting as a way of disciplining my immoderate desire for bodily pleasures. Um, you know, in these day and this day and age, I would encourage people to fast from your cell phone, fast from the internet, fast from electronic media, which is a great distraction to oh, the life yeah. of prayer. I remember hearing Father Thomas Dubay one time comment that he had never met a person with a powerful prayer life that watched a lot of television. And <laughs> I, I took note when Pope Francis was elected in 2013. I was reading about. His biography, didn't know much about him until then, and I learned that he had taken a vow uh, some decades earlier not to watch television. Mm. And so the Pope hadn't, apparently hasn't watched television in like, you know, 30 or 40 years. Wow. He just said, you know, I'm, 
I got too many other things in my life to worry about. I mean, I'm not saying other people can't do it, but he's just, I choose not to just for the sake of the, you know, discipline of my prayer life and so forth. That kind of impressed me. So the, the vast majority of the mortification that we do in the church is of that nature. Now, there is a tradition in the church of, of more severe penances, and uh, you will read uh, Lives of the Saints, for example, where they, some of them have gone to great lengths and might strike people as, uh, as uh, excessive. And first of all, you're not obligated to form the judgment that just because a saint did it, it's necessarily the right thing to do, right? And uh, you know, saints are human beings like anybody else, and they can have uh, they can have they can have sort of fanatical moments and immoderate tendencies that, that probably are not in their best interest. So just because some saint did it doesn't mean you have to do it. Um, and then clearly there are excesses. So there was a medieval heresy called the Flagellantes, um, and if you ever saw. Monty Python's Holy Grail, the, the monks <laughs> that walked around beating themselves in the head with boards, you know. Oh, yeah. There's actually something to that. There, there, there was a group that, that would um, re- responded to the plague by going out and flagellating themselves in public and uh, in the hopes of averting the wrath of God. Now, they were actually declared heretics, right? The flagellant heresy was, uh, was not approved by the Church, and that was an excessive, that was an excessive kind of discipline. Um, but it would always be under the guidance of a spiritual director and with the aim, ultimately, of helping a person grow in, in virtue. And virtue means the rule of right reason. So anytime someone takes up a practice, any kind of practice, could just be prayer, right? could be Bible reading, could be anything. Mm-hmm. If, they, if they press that practice in a way that distorts the, the, the rule of reason and peace of conscience, then that would be excessive, and making that judgment, of course, is probably a little bit particular to the individual involved. I mean, for, for one person, what's extreme might be different than another. But it's always moderated by the rule of reason and the aim of helping a person develop genuine virtue, which is you can't have one virtue in isolation from the others. Like, it's not real fortitude mm. if you have fortitude but totally lack prudence yeah. because it's not good for you. Right? Yeah. And, uh, and you do find that. You find neurotic personalities that will, you know, go hard in on one thing, but you find it totally unbalances their personality, and that's, that's not good. Michelle, fantastic question. Thanks for watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to uh, Oklahoma City and talk with Alfred, listening on the great Oklahoma Catholic Radio. Alfred, what's on your mind today, sir? Yes, thank you for your show. I think it's a wonderful show. Yes, so my question is, uh, I have a family member who's gone away from the fold. He was Catholic because I myself am grown up and raised Catholic, but she has turned away from the faith, and I, I have some anxiety about that and to bring her back, and I pray a lot for her, but I'm just having a real hard time getting to the point where she will come back to the Church. Yes, thank you. I really appreciate the question, Alfred, and I will say that you are definitely not alone. Nope. And yours is probably one of the most common calls we get, not just on this Mm -hmm. show, but on just about every show on EWTN. So, you know, there has been a real crisis of defection from the Catholic faith, especially in the developed world in the last 50 years. And there's hardly a Catholic family out there that doesn't have someone who's walked away from the Church to, of course, the great angst and pain and consternation of their family members. Um, so, uh, you know, what I can offer you uh, is no great wisdom, but just what I have as a human being based on experience and my own personal opinions, and you can take them with a grain of salt. Um, you know, generally speaking, our loved ones that leave the faith, they don't leave the faith because they're ignorant of what we think. 
they lived with us. They know what we think. <laughs> and so reminding them of what we think or what we value typically doesn't help very much. Um, and they usually have left the faith for some reason. And most people who leave the faith uh, do so because they've had bad experiences in the Catholic Church. So my judgment is that it's incredibly important to live in a way that puts the lie to or contradicts or maybe undoes the harm of whatever bad experience they had. You know, yeah. So if someone experienced the church as harsh and unloving, well, then I need to really focus on being not harsh and very loving. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that, I mean, and then, you know, most people who come to the faith do so through relationships. And they're disposed to accept arguments or reasons, f- generally speaking, from matters of the heart. So, uh, you know, while argument can play a role in bringing someone to the faith, it certainly did in my case, uh, if you're not disposed to hear the argument or to find them compelling, you won't. And so the groundwork is really laid at the level of the heart, and that, that's the level of personal relationship and vulnerability, you know, like being willing to say, hey, you know, I, I did this as a Catholic, and I was wrong to do that as a Catholic. I thought this was the right way to go. Mm-hmm. I see now that that hurt you. And I, I was wrong. Will you yeah. forgive me? You know, not not trying to defend all the reasons. Dad, I left the faith, or Uncle, I left the faith for this reason. Oh, yeah, well, let me tell you why we did it that way. That's not going to get you anywhere. No, it's not. Alfred, we will certainly keep you and that family member in our prayers. Thank you so much for your call. Uh, Michael, in Texas, we have about a minute left. What's on your mind today, sir? Yes, um, real quickly, uh, partial indulgences, as i.e. saying... Uh, uh, doing the sign of the cross in front of the cemetery as you're driving by, uh, saying my Lord and my God as the Father is uh, consecrating the body and blood. How come priests don't talk about those more often? Yeah, I thanks. I, I appreciate the question. So if I had a dollar for everything <laughs> that priests don't talk about, you know, I would have a lot of dollars, okay? There is, a, and that's not just indulgences, but many, many things. Mm-hmm. Um, there is an Incaridian of indulgences, a little book of indulgences published by the Church that lays out all of the things that the Church, all the practices to which the Church is attached an indulgence. And there are a lot of them, you know, so if you get a hold of the Incaridian, you've got these that you mentioned and a whole bunch more. Um, so I guess, and this is just my judgment, I don't I could be wrong about this, the extent to which a priest uh, encourages with this or any other indulgence probably depends a lot on the priority that that priest places on indulgences in his own spirituality. Yeah, for sure. Michael, thanks so much for your call. When when he mentioned there uh, at the elevation that you say, my Lord and my God, that's something that I do, And but I've got to remind myself, hey, I really mean it. I really mean it. Yes. I'm not just saying it. I right. mean it. Absolutely. Hey, Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday here on EWTN Radio, 2 p.m. Eastern for the live broadcast, and that's uh, an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Check out the podcast anytime by going to EWTNRadio.net. On behalf of our fantastic team, including Rich today, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Thanks for joining us. See you tomorrow right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a great day, and God bless. God bless.